I will build my church. What precious words. Are there any sweeter words, more important words in life than those words that Jesus said? I will build my church. In his recent book, The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church, pastor and author Dustin Benge notably quotes the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who once described the church as the dearest place on earth. Now, Hershey, Pennsylvania might boast to be the sweetest place on earth, but the church of Jesus Christ is without question the dearest place on earth. Spurgeon says, nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers and our gifts and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. You know, many of us come to church because of what we can get out of it. When God's word declares we are to be a part of the church for what we can bring to it. The 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is without question ground zero for the church of Jesus Christ. Here we find our unique origin story. Maybe uh, those comic book, what, what's those comics that like the origin stories? Marvels and there's another one, the X-Men. You have uh, origin stories behind all of these uh, fictitious and mythical characters. But, but here we have our origin story. Where did we come from and, and why do we exist as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ? Here in this very passage, you'll recall that the assault of the earth fisherman by the name of Peter from Galilee makes what is now called the great confession, even a great announcement concerning the true identity of the son of a Jewish carpenter, a man by the name of Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth, specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God, the Son of the living God, the text says. Here we discover, tucked away in this text, wonderfully, the architectural designs which lay behind the now nearly 2,000 years and now worldwide project called the Church of Jesus. Jesus has been busy building his church Moreover, here against a very menacing and ominous background, that ancient city of Caesarea Philippi, the very embodiment of evil, of paganism, of idolatry, even of emperor worship in this time, we hear the gracious and glorious announcement on Jesus' own lips, friends, our Lord and our leader, our sovereign and our Savior, who immediately will go on to predict his own death and burial, and resurrection, therefore showing us the means by which he builds his church, not by military might, but by sacrificial death. He says to Peter and Peter's friends, his disciples, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell can't do anything about it. That's what he says. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of this church, and the true church. Today, as we have just witnessed, four individuals take their public stand with the Lord Jesus Christ by entering into the waters of baptism. 
being immersed or nearly immersed as they were this morning and testifying of their love of Jesus Christ. And then an additional six individuals, 10 in total, stepping up to church membership this morning. I'd like for us to fix our gaze, our attention over the next few minutes upon five priceless features of the glorious design of Jesus' church. Five priceless features. Implicit in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, which is really our sole verse of study, although I'll drill around the context a little bit with you this morning. We find five incredible realities coming from the lips of Jesus himself about his own building project. And friends, the church is no hobby horse of Christ. It was the very reason why he came from heaven. He loves you. He loves me. Jesus is no weekend warrior dabbling here or there to build his church in his spare time. No, he is 24-7, 365 committed to your redemption and to your righteousness. He's going to build his church in us. Five features, let me give them to you now. We'll come back to them towards the end. The first of which in this verse, Matthew 16, verse 18, we see that the church is a personal project. The church is a personal project. Notice in the passage, and even in Jesus' response to Peter's climactic confession, the great confession, if you will, of his true identity, that Jesus doesn't say to Peter and his disciples, I will build your church. Nor does the Lord say to them, you will build my church. But rather he says, I will build my church. Listen. The construction of the church of Jesus Christ, now millions upon millions strong, is an intensely personal matter to Jesus Christ, and it should be to us as well. Secondly, I want you to see as well that the church is a prophetic project, or maybe you would prefer the word predictive project. Again, the text here, I notice... Jesus says, a future tense, I will build my church. Not I have or I am now doing, but I will build my church. And I think what we see here is an emphasis that really gets its uh, primary start in Acts chapter 2 at the founding of the church at Pentecost. Through the spirit-enabled preaching of Peter and the disciples, thousands of people hear of who Jesus Christ is and they become to belong to God's people through belief in the truth about Christ. This is a predictive project. Jesus will build his church. He still is building his church. When he's done building his church, we'll see him in the sky. Amen. Amen. Thirdly, we also hear this morning that Jesus Christ uh, and this project is a gloriously powerful project. A powerful project. The word build in the Greek is the word oikodomio. Oikodomio. I will build my church. The verb, which it is a verb, means to erect or to build a building or a house. A domicile, you have heard that word perhaps. That's in the root there. Through Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection, and through the subsequent indwelling of the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church, Jesus would build a kingdom. 
Really a spiritual kingdom, though with physical and earthly implications. Jesus is building his church, his kingdom, in heart after heart through belief in the truth until his eventual return. Fourth, we learn this project as well is a very precious project. project. He says in the text, I will build my church. He calls us his church, friends. The church belongs uniquely to Jesus Christ. Listen to me. This fellowship doesn't belong to a select few who are the leaders of the church. It belongs to Jesus Christ alone. There's only one name who should be on the sign, and it's Jesus. The day I see my name out on any sign is the day I'm going to go and mark it through. Even if it's a digital reader board, it'll be an expensive uh, task, but I'll do it anyway. I, I, I dare you. The church is not a democracy. It's not uh, an autocracy. It's not an oligarchy. It is not a human dictatorship. And if it ever becomes that, you let me know. I'm sure some of you will. You're good at that. Um, It's a benevolent kingdom, a benevolent kingdom with a sovereign servant. He's sovereign, but he serves us. A king, Jesus at the top. So Christ is the builder and he's the owner. He's the leader of his church. It's a precious project to him. Fifth, and there's a little bonus that I'm going to throw in here at the end. We see that the church is a people project. It's a people project. Jesus says, again, I will build my church. And the word church there is a significant word. It's a known word to many of us. It's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia simply means an assembly and a congregation It refers to Christ's called out ones, ecclesia, called away, called out, God's gathering of his righteous saints. It's interesting, and others in the commentaries have pointed this out, that Jesus only uses the term ecclesia two times in the Gospels. That might be surprising to us. Paul really builds the doctrine of the church, and he uses the term many times. Jesus only mentions ecclesia twice. Here's the first one, Matthew 16, 18. And the second time is two chapters later, Matthew 18, verse 17. Interestingly, in the context of church discipline or church purity. And so the point for now is simply that Jesus didn't promise to build a program, nor did he guarantee to invest in some governmental or economic Uh, enterprise, Jesus didn't lay out plans for some grandiose place of education. Instead, friends, Jesus promised to build a people called his church. We say we're going to church, and what we mean by that is we're going to the church building, but friends, the church goes to the building. We are the church. We are a community of people called out from the world and called to life and faith in Christ. Now, there's a bonus point, because I'm afflicted with alliteration. Uh, It is also a P, and it comes from the second half of Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I will build my church, and then there's another clause, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Therefore, we are a permanent project. We are a permanent project. 
Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the gates of hell simply here are to be understood referring to death. His own death cannot stand against this project, nor can ours. Before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, death reigned over all men. Go to Romans 5 to get a taste of that. However, Christ himself has conquered sin and death by his own personal resurrection from the dead. If Jesus died and is still dead and buried, the church is vain. The church is futile. Roman, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all of that. But the church then is not only a community of called out ones, those redeemed by the blood of God's own son, but it's also a permanent household, a kingdom that God promised to David. He's building in the the greater David, Jesus Christ, who will also be one day a resurrected community forever and ever in the presence of almighty God. This church, friends, is a permanent Project. There's no other uh, institution, organization, uh, or community on earth that you can join, and the, uh, the the membership will ever expire. Will never expire. Only the church will last forever. Now, with these five, maybe six features flowing out of verse 18, now fully in view, and I want us to back up for a moment and and dig around the context of Matthew 16. And Peter's great confession, even Jesus' own great construction of the church of Christ. Now again, prior to this point in Matthew's gospel narrative, particularly in Matthew chapters 4 through 15, Jesus has been doing the hard and even taxing work of demolition. You're going to hear a few illustrations having to do with demolition over the next few months. Just get ready for them. Now, maybe an odd choice of words to use here, and I don't think I really would have put it this way before the last couple of weeks of study, but Jesus really is in his Galilean ministry before he goes up to Jerusalem for the last time where he's crucified on our behalf. He spends his time in many ways clearing away or demolishing the many misconceptions that people had about who he was. And we see that even in the questions that are posed here and the people's response. In the chapters leading up to here, we see Jesus teaching frequently as one with authority, as we read. We see him working miracles. He's even displaying his divine credentials in raising the dead and healing uh, the sick and in casting out demons. Jesus is displaying that he's the divine son of God, that he himself is divine. He is God. We also find Jesus, interestingly, in frequent conflict Not so much with uh, the outsiders, but with the religious insiders. Jesus is often in conflict with the religious uh, scribes and Pharisees. And all of this is effort to demolish, or maybe I would just simply say more uh, favorably, to clarify who he really was and who he is. He's revealing himself uh, as the Son of Man and the King of Israel. He isn't content to draw a crowd He wants to draw disciples. He wants to draw people who will follow him in truth. And then suddenly, we read in Matthew 16, verse 13, the beginning of our text that our brother Mike read, Jesus takes the 12 
12 disciples, who would then be the 12 apostles of the early church, he takes them away on what some have called a a spiritual retreat. Now, when Jesus came, Matthew 16, 13, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Remember, at this time, John is dead. Others say Elijah. Remember, Elijah was taken up. His body was never found because it was in heaven. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Who do people say that I am? When I go on a retreat, usually I tell people stuff. Jesus is so much better. He asks questions. It's that interesting. He takes them away to ask them questions so that a greater truth can be revealed. He's going to tell them many things, but to prime the pump, he asks a good question, maybe even the greatest question. You need to understand that Peter's great confession needed a clear and clean foundation. There was all sorts of misconceptions and misunderstandings that maybe even Peter and the disciples were building their understanding of Jesus upon. Just like our own exciting building project here at Trinity these days, demolition precedes construction. By the way, is it that exciting? You see the, the fence? Nobody fell in the big hole, right? We, we've been hard at work. Progress is being made. Guys, stick with us. I know it's inconvenient at times. I know it's costly. But guys, it's going to be worth it. God's going to do amazing, continue to do amazing things in and through this body of believers. Keep plugging on. But why did Jesus take his disciples here? Why did they go to this location? Why Caesarea Philippi? It's important to note some of these points. Well, situated just 25 or so miles north of the Sea of Galilee. I think there's a map up on the screen. And just beneath... Really, the highest point in Israel is a mountain called Mount Hermon in the northern part of the country. Caesarea Philippi is located there, and it was predominantly a Gentile or Roman city. In fact, the city was named after Tiberius Caesar by the son of Herod the Great's son, Herod Philip. He built Caesarea Philippi, or at least that, uh, that era's Caesarea Philippi. Now, Pastor Richard Phillips is helpful in his commentary. He states the following, quote, This center of Greco-Roman culture in Palestine had a large pagan population. Indeed, it would have been hard to find a place more symbolic of the world's system of idolatry than this particular city. Caesarea Philippi boasted a famous cave that housed an ancient shrine to Baal but that the Greeks had dedicated to their god Pan, P-A-N. This area is also called Panis. The Tetrarch Philip, in order to ingratiate himself with Augustus Caesar, had erected a temple resplendent in white marble, massive in size, and dedicated it to the worship of the Roman emperor, renaming the place after the emperor and himself Caesarea Philippi. Caesar Philip. Now, it's hard to believe, and I think there might be another picture coming up, that it's been just two months shy of 10 years. You can go maybe to the group photo back in the back there. Is that Jamie back there? Doing a great job, Jamie. Good job. Uh, 
It's been two months shy of 10 years since dear old Pastor Dan was there in the country of Israel. Even there, staring at the gates of hell. I stared with my own eyes into this ominous rock face no, back then, at Jesus' day, known as the gates of hell. Now it's been turned into a tourist uh, attraction. And do you know what we did as a group? We grabbed our Bibles, we opened to Matthew chapter 16, and we read verse 18. Jesus said to them, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I still get goosebumps thinking about that. Notice that here before a swirl of Jewish confusion over his true identity, and quite literally in the presence of a pantheon of Greek and Roman idols, Jesus asked his disciples the question that ends all questions. It's the question, maybe you don't know that this question is lingering before you, but it is, that you need to answer above all. Who do you say Jesus is? He says to his disciples, who do people say I am? Well, okay, who do you say that I am? Charles Spurgeon famously said in response to that question, it matters very little what others say about Jesus, whether they are right or wrong, but what is your opinion, friend? In the original language here, one may notice when you dig into the Greek that the plural pronoun you, what do you, not just you, Peter, but you all, we'd say in the South, all y'all, what do you say about me? It's in the emphatic position. In other words, the text could be rendered, uh, he says to them, you, now, who do you pronounce me to be? That's a a literal translation of, of that particular verse. Remember Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples by this point, had spent nearly every waking moment with Jesus for almost two years. One year of his public ministry remained before his execution in Jerusalem. They would soon begin that final stage of their discipleship training on the road to Jerusalem, that last leg of the trip, before Jesus would be delivered, crucified, buried, but then rise from the dead. They had taken in his teachings... They had marveled at his miracles. They had witnessed his many wonders, but they were still confused as to his identity. They had even seen or been stunned at his embrace to prostitutes, to lepers. I mean, what would we say if somebody walked in our midst and reached out to the outcast and loved the unlovely? We, church folk, are often quick to prejudge in a negative way those types of activities when that's the very heartbeat of Jesus himself, to go after the stray sheep, to love the unlovely. Jesus moved towards the sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. That's why, he's, that's why we're qualified to be his friend, because we are sinners. Who was this man from Galilee called Jesus? Now, Peter... Jesus says, in a sense, I know what others are saying about me. I know that the demons of hell, I know what they want to do to me. But here's what I really want to know, Peter. What do you say about me? All that you've seen, all that you've experienced, has it moved the needle of discipleship for you? 
I can even hear the echo of Jesus' question lingering over this congregation this morning. Who do y'all say he is? Now, you have to love Peter, don't you? Oh, we love Peter. Now, now's not the time to debate the primacy of Peter among the original apostles. That's an important debate. Now's not the time. Today's message, sort of like this passage, really isn't so much about the papacy of Rome or the primacy or rockiness of Peter, a play on his name. In fact, Peter really isn't the focus of this text at all. Jesus is. But Peter himself, speaking both for himself and for the disciples, famously, and I think marvelously declares in verse 16, something we need to hear, you are Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter, because of that, certainly deserves his props. I think as Protestants, we can get a little uncomfortable with Peter and Mary above all. But Peter deserves his props. His confession is rightly called the Great Confession, and they came from Peter's lips. It's okay to give honor where honor's due. The recognition and receptance of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the long-awaited Messiah of Israel is the concrete confession upon which Jesus builds his church. But here's the caveat and the clarification. Nobody needs to put Peter on a pedestal. Do not elevate Peter higher than he ought to be. It never works out well when we elevate human beings. Keep me off all pedestals because I'll just break my knee on the way down. Keep us off. But I say that because not seven verses later, the very mouth that confessed Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God is also rebuking Jesus because Jesus has just predicted that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Seven verses later, he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus takes him aside and says, gotta love this, Get behind me, Satan, for your mind is not set on the things of heaven, the things of God. You are a hindrance to me. Boy, is that not a glimpse at discipleship. We get it right in one moment, and we are far afield in the next. But notice Jesus' response to him in verse 17. Jesus commends Peter. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, flesh and blood is simply an idiom referring to humanity. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you didn't think this up on your own, nor did some other human agent, some human instrument uh, reveal this to you, but rather my Father in heaven this is spiritually revealed news. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. A takeaway could be this. Our faith, Christianity, is uh, a revealed faith. It is not an invented religion. Our faith is a revealed faith. Peter received this insight from the Father himself, and blessing followed. Nevertheless, we read in verse 18, really our, our key verse I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Now, Brian mentioned this verse earlier in our worship package, Ephesians 2.20. We are, as the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, not the men themselves, but their message about Jesus. Christ himself being the cornerstone. And likewise, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 is another good verse to have noted down. Paul says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the firm foundation. But again, Peter and the disciples declare him to be this. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus Christ is the solid rock, the firm foundation, and the chief cornerstone of the church of God. Peter is a significant stone, but Jesus is the cornerstone. Make no mistake. And when you have conversations with your Roman Catholic friends or other people, uh, feel free to go right in there and, and remind them of this great truth. It is a significant truth. But just envision the scene. Here is Jesus and his disciples standing directly in front of this idle, laced rock known as the gates of hell. Here's Peter, whose name, ironically enough, means rock or stone. Peter, Petros, Jesus says, you are a rock, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Jesus blesses Peter, and by extension, he blesses all of the disciples who commonly confess Christ as Messiah and Lord. United in this bleary-eyed belief, they really did not understand until after his death and resurrection who he was, and yet he blesses them. Again, Peter isn't the star of this scene. Jesus is. But Peter is a significant uh, person in this scene. The church of Jesus Christ is the gathering of God's precious ones. There's no doubt about it. Peter gets at this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and following, where we read these words. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men and in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Peter writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter continues, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, famously we know these words, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and to his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's pen wrote those words, the Spirit directing him every step of the way. The church of Jesus Christ is truly the dearest and most lovely of all places anywhere on earth, even when we don't act like it. Why? Because Jesus takes his work personally. You know, if you were around uh, the building this week, and many of you were serving the Lord and one another in the community, then you would have seen all sorts of men walking around with a few of the hard hats on, but all of them with these uh, bright yellow sweatshirts on. 
These men were hard, moving earth and ripping up concrete and clearing out plaster and drywall from the old fellowship hall. It doesn't look anything like it did. I was in there just a few days ago. Joe and Sean and Vince and others from Kaiser Martin and Shirk Excavation uh, have been hard at work getting this place ready for new construction. But I ask you a question. Who's really building the building? Who's really building the new extension or expansion of the church? They aren't. We are. We've been praying for years. We have been planning for nearly five years for this expansion. We have been sacrificially giving tithes and offerings for the expansion of this house of God. The men, and they are worthy of their honor and wages from Kaiser Martin and others are important, but they're simply carrying out orders. We are building that building as God allows us to do so. The same is true of the church of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus says to his disciples, I will build my church. The beautiful thing, though, is that we are the tools in his hands. Jesus is building his house, but we are his hands and his feet. We minister through preaching and through praying, through teaching and through discipling, by giving and by going. But it is Jesus, make no mistake, who is building his church still today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The church, both you and I together here this morning, is personal to Jesus, and that itself is precious. He's the builder, we are the beloved. And if this divine project called the church is personal to Jesus, ought it not be personal to us? Like I said earlier, Jesus isn't finished with his work. This project is still ongoing. Therefore, Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church. It's personal, but it's prophetic. One writer said, building is always costly. It eats up commitment. It devours human capital. It wearies our spiritual muscles. Tearing down is cheap. Demo is easy. A monkey with a match can destroy more in an hour than a hundred wise men can build in a year. In fact, to destroy, one does not even need to lift a hammer or light a match or send a wrecking ball. One only needs to do nothing. An unfinished product becomes a heap of ruins when labor stops. But God isn't stopping. He's not slowing his pace. He's not changing his plan. He's not laying off his workers. He's not going bankrupt. And he doesn't need a permit either. If God Almighty has declared his intention to build his church, then he will do it. Who are we to walk off the job? God is going to build his church. Consider the past 2,000 years and the work that Christ has done. This project called the people of God has grown from Jerusalem all the way to Blandon, Pennsylvania. It's grown from 12 disciples to 2.2 billion professing disciples of Jesus Christ on planet earth today. 
It's gone from one church in Jerusalem to 380,000 churches in the United States alone. Now, they're not all good churches, but that's at however many churches there are. And the reason this has happened is because Jesus is still at work. He said, I will build my church. It's also a powerful movement. What exactly is Jesus concerned about building? Well, I'll tell you what he's not concerned about. He's not simply concerned about building and filling up auditoriums. He's looking for people that will worship and adore him. He's working to rescue people and to make them worshipers of the one true living God. Jesus isn't concerned with seats, but with saints. Jesus is building a project, and he's ultimately concerned about building character into his disciples. Not concrete or construction materials, but flesh and blood who love him and listen to him and look like him and serve others by his power. Jesus, the church that Jesus is concerned with and is busy building, is not adorned with decorations, but is to be adorned with disciples who love and look like Christ himself, who live out the fruit of the Spirit. The powerful work of building his church is the work of making disciples through evangelism and marking disciples in baptism and communion and in maturing disciples through the Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word uh, and mobilizing disciples in evangelism. Jesus is building His church and we are the Spirit-empowered tools that He uses. It's also true that this is a precious project. Jesus says, I will build my church. And there are all sorts of people who claim his name and hang his name outside of their building, but they want nothing to do with following him. It's tragic. So what then marks out the kind of churches that Jesus has been busy building? I suggest five things just very quickly. Number one, they're gospel-centered churches. That is, they're not concerned about human religion, but about preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead. We must be a gospel-centered church. They're also God-honoring churches. That means we believe what God has said and we do what God has declared. Thirdly, we are spirit-directed churches. We, don't, we take our cues from the Lord, but He also is operating through us by the working of His own Spirit. They are Bible-teaching churches. I recently watched a clip of somebody saying, basically, just put the Bible away because it's old and archaic and irrelevant. No. We are Trinity Bible Fellowship Church, and may we always be. And fifth, they are compassionate churches oriented towards reaching the lost. That's both in what we say and how we treat people, friends. Our words matter. And the way in which we live out those words matter. That's what it means to be a church precious to Jesus. That we listen to him and we follow him. John MacArthur described this last element in the edifice of Christ's building project as a people-centered priority of the church. He says, quote, The church comprises an ecclesia, an assembly of people who have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And Jesus uses living stones, individual people, to build his church. The mandate of evangelization is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the goal of edification is to present every believer complete or mature in Jesus Christ. 
He says, I, Jesus says, I will build my people, my church. I wonder here this morning, are you a part of this spiritual house, this personal, prophetic, and powerful, and precious people project that's going to last forever called the church? Are you really here with us? You know, you can't buy your way in to membership. You can't work your way into membership. You can't inherit or pass on your membership, but rather you must believe your way into belonging. You must believe upon Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then you will belong in this church. We want to love those who don't believe yet, but membership is reserved for those who believe in Christ, who follow Him in baptism, who commit themselves to His glory in the ministry of the church. You know, one day all the physical buildings on this planet, even the one we will soon construct, will lie in ruins. There's a cheery thought for you. But the spiritual building, the precious project of the church, is going to remain forever. We won't wear out. In fact, we're going to get an upgrade. Can't wait for that. This is a permanent project. I'll close with this. I read just this week in one, one book in my office about um, the French atheist and outspoken opponent of the church who took for his name because he really despised his own father, Voltaire. I'm sure most of us have heard the name Voltaire. We may not know too much about him. He lived and wrote and was actually quite a prominent contributor to the Age of the Enlightenment there in France. Voltaire famously predicted in his day rather foolishly, I might just insert, that in 50 years from his time, no one would even remember Christianity. He says, quote, In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice that it took 12 apostles to rear. Close quote. If I was standing nearby, I would do one of these numbers after he said that. What happened 20 years later? Christianity remained, Voltaire lay dying, alone and hopeless. Pastor Richard Phillips wrote that the doctor who attended Voltaire upon his death recorded his last words, which were these, I am abandoned by God and man. Funny thing for an atheist to say. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months more of life. Then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh, Christ, oh, Jesus Christ. Those were his last words. Now, 50 years after this famous and foolish boast, that he would himself erase or expunge Christianity from the pages of history, Voltaire was dead, and the house from which he assaulted the church of Jesus Christ with his very pen... That house had become the distribution center for the Geneva Bible Society. How about that? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are the fruit of Jesus' faithful promise. May we continue to be faithful in our own day. For we serve a gracious builder 
a gracious owner, a gracious leader of the church named Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in God, what an honor it is to teach your word. And yet, O oh Lord, the honor is all Christ's. Father, I pray that you would use this message in particular today to reinvigor your people, to help us see how precious this project is, how important it is in this day, for there are people dying apart from Christ around us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue your good work, not just in allowing more plaster to come onto this property, but new lives and people to come here by faith in Jesus Christ, to enter those waters behind us, to identify with Jesus, to be tra trained and, and, and mobilized to serve his very name. Oh Lord, we love you and we praise you for all that you've done and all that you will do as we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.